Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 4th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's some of the things we know about the YouTube shooter. She was, seems to be, mentally ill. She was Iranian. She might say Persian. She was a she, a female, an animal rights activist. She used a handgun. Now, some people, all right, let's not exaggerate. Some, a few foolish folk on Twitter were saying, oh, all of those points, how quickly will the media bury it? Their point is that the media only give rise when a shooter is uh, something like a right-wing nut job, which is not really true. I'm in the media. We tend to go with the death toll as the defining characteristic of what gets attention and also the fact that, you know, this is unusual and a female and at YouTube, it is getting plenty of attention. But it was also a point of criticism among these foolish folk on Twitter that, oh, she also used a handgun, not an AR-15 or a similar weapon, an assault rifle, if you will. And that fact, that also doesn't fit in with your liberal media narrative. You know, I, I don't know. I can't assess it. There's really no liberal media narrative. But here's the thing. The fact that she didn't use an AR-15 is what made this a much less deadly shooting than had she used an AR-15 or Bushmaster or Sig Sauer or one of these what they sometimes call assault-type rifles. Parkland shooting, 17 dead. There was an AR-15 used. Now, around that, there were two school shootings. They got attention. They were the Marshall County High School in Kentucky, where two people died. And there was the Great Mills High School in Maryland, where one girl died and the shooter also killed himself. And here in the YouTube shooting, four were shot and only the shooter wound up dead, self-inflicted. All of those other shootings were horrific, but they weren't as horrific. And I've got to think that the presence of a handgun instead of an AR-15 made that the case. They didn't add up to a fifth of the toll of Parkland. If you've ever seen videos of what the round fired from an AR-15, which isn't big, it's 22, but it's fired at such velocity that it just tears through human tissue. Now, people who are against gun control will argue that if you have malice in your heart, you maybe heard Charles Cook saying this the other day, if you have malice in your heart, it doesn't matter. You can ban an AR-15, they're going to get some weapon and do some damage. Yeah, some damage, but not as much damage. When you use a far less deadly weapon than an AR-15, fewer people will wind up dead. Among the reasons is that aiming the AR-15 is easier, the force of the rounds ripping through the human body, like I said, and also there does seem to be this this attraction to the AR-15 by those who are most committed to mayhem. In fact, there's no way to tell, but I think it's all part of their sick plots, and you take away the AR-15, maybe you take away some of the motivation. You know, after a tragedy, I think we tend to find in it the lesson that we want, and the clearest example of this for me is I remember right after 9-11, there was some thought that said, well, let's look at the debate around Star Wars or uh, missile defense. Wow, how unnecessary is that? You got guys in planes. Why possibly invest in missile defense? Whereas people who are pro-missile defense going in or before 9-11 on 9-10-01 said, well, this shows exactly why you need missile defense. This is a small non-state actor trying to sneak through a dangerous weapon. Imagine if such a state got a weapon. There might be one rogue state with one nuclear weapon. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to shoot it down from space? Again, 
most of these tragedies don't change your mind. But to me, it at least supports the claim that when a shooting goes down with a handgun and not an AR-15, fewer people will die. And that's why I think that this shooting with a handgun winds up being a way, an argument, again, to ban the AR-15. On the show today, I spiel about the return of Roseanne. She's got some crazy ideas in real life and a funny show on the screen. But first, a compelling case of judicial malfeasance in Mississippi that had reverberations about a common type of evidence and flaws that beset the criminal justice system throughout all the land. In the 1990s, within two miles of each other, a couple years apart, a pair of three-year-old girls were raped and murdered in rural Mississippi. Bite marks were found on the bodies. These cases would seem to be related, and yet two men, two different men, who apparently were acting alone, were each convicted of killing one girl. Years later, they were exonerated, although... After even a DNA exoneration, it took years for them to get out of prison. How did this all happen? The cadaver king and the country dentist tells the story, and it starts and to some extent ends with two doctors, Stephen Hayne and Michael West, forensic examiners who misused science and dabbled in junk science to get convictions that the legal system abetted. Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington have written the Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, a true story of injustice in the American South. And Radley's with me now. Hello, Radley. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you. Let's start off with the position of the coroner. This is fascinating. I think of the coroner as a serious medical man, and yet you point out that in some states, the qualifications are something like a high school diploma and not being an atheist. So I think most people think a coroner and medical examiner, they get the two positions confused. A medical examiner is a, a doctor, um, usually a forensic pathologist, and it's a person who performs autopsies. Uh, a coroner is uh, it's a political position, it's elected, it's usually pretty pretty entry level, pretty low paying. They have basically one power, but it's a pretty significant one. They are in charge of death investigations. Anytime there's a, a suspicious death in, in the county, uh, the county coroner is, is in charge. And it's a very overlooked office. Uh, and in the book, we talk about how you know, significant it has been throughout uh, American history, particularly um, when it comes to things like racial violence. Yeah, it was a means to sort of let everyone off, even if uh, it was pretty clear who um, conducted a lynching, let's say. Right. They, they didn't have the high profile sort of position in our collective memory as, say, Bull Connor or, you know, some racist governor or segregationist governor. But, you know, sort of under the radar behind the scenes, they were enormously effective at allowing lynchings to happen, at preserving kind of the, um, the institution of lynching. Uh, and they did it by letting, you know, lynchers off the hook. Um, they, they would either, you know, we talk about cases where, you know, some a black man was found, you know, hanging from a bridge and riddled with bullets and the coroner determined it was a suicide. But even when they do determine that it's an actual homicide, over and over again, you see throughout U.S. history, you see this magical phrase that coroners use, death at the hands of persons unknown. And what it usually meant is they didn't bother to actually try to ascertain the identities of anybody in the lynch party. Sometimes, you know, there are photos of the lynch party on the front of the local newspaper. The identities were, should have been easy to find, uh, but the coroners, they could, do, they could use that magic phrase. Uh, and that would end the investigation, uh, and nothing, nothing more would come of it afterward. And so it became a, um, 
uh, I think a really overlooked uh, uh, part of our, you know, kind of racial history and the history of systemic racism in this country. Tell me about the cadaver king, the country dentist, and the cases that you focused in on. The two cases that drive the book are, are the, the two that you referred to at the, in the introduction, which are uh, Kennedy Brewer and LeVon Brooks. Um, and LeVon Brooks was convicted first uh, of a murder that happened in 1990. A little girl was abducted from her home uh, as she slept, raped, and murdered. A couple years later, as you mentioned, uh, another very, very similar rape and murder of a little girl abducted from her home about a mile and a half as the crow flies from the original uh, crime. But where, where Hain and West were sort of particularly dangerous and, and why they were so favored and why they came to dominate the death investigation system in Mississippi uh, is that they were very convincing at confirming whatever local authorities' hunch was about who the killer might be in a particular case. So in the LeVon Brooks case especially, uh, Hain does the autopsy. He finds marks on the girl that he claims might be bite marks. Other experts who have reviewed his autopsy say they were probably insect bites. But he calls in West, who's his sort of frequent collaborator and this bite mark guru, he claims. And so they take 10, 12 suspects. The interesting thing about that is is among the initial people he arrested was the actual killer, the guy who would later, 20 or 18 years later, confess to the crime. And West took a dental mold from this guy along with all the other suspects uh, and initially excluded him as the source of the bite. And, you know, the reason why he did was because by then the local law enforcement had already focused on LeVon Brooks as their main suspect. The two stay in prison. Brewer almost is executed a couple of times to remain in prison until 2007, I believe. Um, Brewer actually gets exonerated by DNA testing in 2000. Right. So let's go through a couple of the, the misdeeds of the experts and of the system. Let's just stipulate that here are some things that went wrong. Mm-hmm. The bite analysis on the victims, part one, there were no bites on the victims. The best evidence seems to be that they're doing analysis of bites that didn't occur. Two, the experts weren't acting blind. They knew who the potential perpetrators were and only had to confirm, yes, they did it, as opposed to what would be best practices, which is here are some bite marks, here are a bunch of uh, maybe people's teeth Tell me which ones match the bite marks. We're going to keep going on. Three, the experts, the guys you write about, their credentials are totally bogus and given from diploma mills. And four, and this is the best one, there's no such thing as bite mark forensics. You have convinced me that the entire idea of A, uh, the human skin being an acceptable repository for a bite that can tell you whose teeth it was, that's questionable. But also the idea that I think most people to this day have that teeth are like fingerprints. I mean, teeth are used to identify bodies. Teeth are unique. If you get a bite mark, it can only come from one set of teeth. The best scientists don't believe that. Did I miss anything? I would say one other thing, and that is in in the second case, there's video of of Dr. West's examination of, in the Courtney Jackson case, forensic experts, medical examiners who've reviewed West's sort of examination in this video say that not only are these, were these not bite marks and probably insect bites, not only was it impossible for him to match these marks to the dentition of Kennedy Brewer, but he actually takes the dental mold of Kennedy Brewer and jams it into the skin of the body of this little girl over and over again and actually creates the bite marks that he later claims came from Kennedy Brewer. He doesn't even deny that he does this, that he jams the, the dental mold directly into the skin of the, of the deceased. But he claims it's a perfectly legitimate way 
of performing this analysis. And I, I, I have the video of another case of another little girl where he does this. And in the video, you actually see the bite mark appears where it wasn't before after he does this. He's actually creating the evidence that he later uses against these yeah. people. And, and I mean, I've, I've used this analogy before when, when you look at the field of bite mark expertise, and particularly when uh, there have been some forensic national forensic review panels uh, that look at bite mark evidence, the, the scientific validity of it, you know, to test it, to actually subject it to scientific scrutiny. And the complaint from the bite mark community is always, well, there aren't any bite mark analysts on this this committee. So, of course, it's going to, you know, come down against our field. And it's like saying, you know, if we want to test um, <laughs> the scientific validity of, of, of astrology or, you know, like you said, of psychics, we're going to assemble a panel of astrologers or psychics yeah. to, you know, to, to, to assess <laughs> scientific validity? No, of course not. You want to subject yeah. it to sort of independent people who are outside the field. Although with the astrologers, they could say, you know, your panel was two Tauruses and an Aries. What do you expect? Yeah, exactly. And if you want to look at the sort of the field of forensics in general, I mean, bite mark analysts have been testifying in courts across the country. And, you know, to this day, despite everything we've already discussed about bite mark analysis and, and how scientifically dubious it is, to this day, not a single court in America has upheld a challenge to the credibility of bite mark testimony, including a Pennsylvania court just last year. I mean, it's astonishing to me that after the video that I found in the Louisiana case came out where the bite mark appears out of nowhere, that he wasn't prosecuted for it. You know, not only but not only was he not prosecuted, the guy who was convicted is still on death row in Louisiana. What about the possibility of a mechanism where our legal system really scrutinizes the kind of junk science that doesn't just exist in Mississippi, but infects the courts throughout America. Are we moving closer to that or are we, you know, just as benighted as these Mississippi judges were who allowed uh, tooth mark and bite mark science because the judge before them allowed it? No. I mean, it, the, the system is, is really bad at distinguishing good science from bad and has been for a long time. Um, I think the fundamental problem right now is that the courts, the Supreme Court in a series of cases called the Daubert cases in the 1990s, made judges the gatekeepers of good and bad science in the courtroom. And this is kind of the fundamental, this really gets to the heart of why our legal system is ill-equipped to assess science, because law and science are two very different ways of looking at the world. And we've tried to kind of shoehorn science into our legal system by evaluating it under the laws and sort of procedures that we evaluate other types of evidence. And it just doesn't work. A good way to put it is science questions the past, whereas the legal system relies on it. We look at precedent. We look at controlling case law. Um, and so not only have the courts led in si some areas of science prematurely that, you know, science later corrected, they led in fields that weren't science at all, fields like bite mark matching, hair, ma hair fiber matching, carpet fiber matching, when science does sort of get around to scrutinizing these fields and, and disproves them, well, now all these this case law is locked in. And my co-author uh, always gives this example, and I think it's really powerful. Let's say you're a law clerk in Mississippi uh, for a judge, and the prosecution wants to introduce bite mark evidence in a case. Your judge, your boss tells you, clerk, uh, go research this and, and let me know if there's any controlling case law about whether or not bite mark evidence is admissible in Mississippi. So you go into Westlaw or Lexis and you do your search. And what you're going to find is that there are two controlling case laws today that are the precedent law in determining whether or not bite mark evidence is admissible in a court in Mississippi. And both say it is. One case is Kennedy Brewers and the other is LeVon Brooks. It's amazing. Radley Balco, along with Tucker Carrington, is the author of The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. Thank you, Radley. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
And now the spiel. I tuned into the new Roseanne reboot for one reason. It was probably the same reason that you watched it. If you did, I happen to be a huge fan of Michael Fishman and was just waiting for him to get the right project. I think Fishman, uh, you may know him as DJ Connor, the son. I think of him as the Angus T. Jones of his generation. I hope that's not going too far. Now, others may have been looking for something else in this reboot. The third episode of the nine that were ordered by ABC aired last night. It, too, got good ratings. Maybe not the huge ratings the first episode got. One fan who praised it after the first airing uh, and who was also obliquely mentioned in that airing, you may have heard from this guy. Even look at Roseanne. I called her yesterday. Look at her ratings. Look at her ratings. And it was about us. They haven't figured it out. The fake news hasn't quite figured it out yet. It was about us. Us, you know, the blue-collar family living paycheck to paycheck. They're just like us. They're just like us. You and me. Me. Billionaire, supposedly. Donald Trump and you and the Connors. We're all in this together. And thus, another Trump campaign event said to be about infrastructure went off the rails. We don't usually need much help to derail the Trump infrastructure speech, but to have the highest rated sitcom in four years that praises the president, if you're inclined to read what they said about the president as praise, that will certainly be an attractive nuisance to Donald Trump. And that is why Donald Trump called Roseanne last week. But not everyone was so enthused. See, Roseanne, the character, like Roseanne, the person, is a Trump supporter. Though, in order to make her more palatable, ABC actually toned down the real Roseanne. Usually, you play a heightened, more comedic version of yourself on a sitcom. Not in this case. The real Roseanne traffics in conspiracy theories on Twitter. This Roseanne on the show just seemed to be a person who voted for Donald Trump because of jobs. Now, some of what I said has driven some critics crazy. While ABC's This Week, This Week was the only Sunday show to discuss ABC's Roseanne, go figure, lots of other commentators took aim. On CNN, Brian Lowry wrote, like everything else about the show, the politics feel more abrasive than clever. Roxanne Gay in the New York Times wrote, this fictional family and the show's very real creator are further normalizing Trump and his warped, harmful political ideologies. There are times when we can consume problematic pop culture, but this is not one of those times. Joy Reid on MSNBC agreed. You have this family who people knew, the Connors from the 90s, who are this blue-collar, hard-scrabble family, but they're sort of trying to be everything. They're both incredibly open-minded when it comes to their gender non-conforming grandchild. They've got this black granddaughter who they don't really remark about her, but she's just there with everybody else, and they don't say anything about it. They are Trump supporters, or at least Roseanne and I guess her husband are. Um, and so it is. it strikes me as the way Trump voters want to see themselves and want to be seen mm-hmm. and the way that most of the mainstream media sort of obsessively portrays them. You know, there's a lot right in what Joy Reid was saying there. The mainstream media does valorize the working man and woman as almost mythical and almost always right. They're from the heartland. But when I say the media, I mean the news media. The fact is fictional TV barely deals with the blue-collar worker at all. A study of 262 domestic sitcoms from 1946 to 1990 revealed that only 11% of the shows had blue-collar clerical or service workers as heads of households. This was until 1990. Then Friends and Sex in the City hit. It's worse since then. 
But just because Roseanne offers a needed glimpse of an ignored or overlooked class of people in fictional television doesn't mean that the show gets it right. So I'm here to say the show gets it right. I was a moderate fan of the original show. It came at a time when good family sitcoms weren't so rare, when film before a live studio audience was de rigueur, when broadcasting was just a synonym for on television as opposed to an aspiration. Well, this show, the 2018 version, though not flawless, achieves something really notable. It portrays family dynamics in this fractured nation with insight. Aunt Jackie jibes Roseanne for voting for the worst person ever, who is putting us on the verge of annihilation. That's something she says. And then Roseanne has her quips too. Hey everybody, this is the first dinner together we've had as a family in a long time. Let's try to survive it. Yeah, first let's say grace. Jackie, would you like to take a knee? (laughs) The proof. That this show is nailing this moment of polarization is A, in the ratings, and B, in the fact that it's so polarizing. The right mostly loves it, and some of the left can't get past the politics of its star. But dig deeper. Roseanne Barr is a Looney Tunes bomb thrower. That is true. But you can't really have a show, Roseanne, without her, and she still knows how to deliver a line. She still has her comic timing. The three other biggest stars in the show are John Goodman, who not only skewers Rex Tillerson on SNL, but mocks Trump in interviews. Lori Metcalf, same for her. And Sarah Gilbert, who takes reliably liberal positions on her talk show called The Talk. These show's creators, Roseanne's creators, are Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, who are gigantic Clinton loyalists. They were original FOBs, friends of Bill. They're major donors to the Clintons over the years. Carsey bundled $2.7 million for Hillary Clinton last election cycle, according to FEC filings. And then there are three prominent comedians listed as consulting producers in the credits of this show, this show that's being criticized as normalizing Trump. One of them is Norm MacDonald, who wrote on the original show. He's a brilliant comic. I'll give you an example of something Norm MacDonald once tweeted. I wish Donald Trump were not president, and I sometimes wonder how the people who have profited so greatly by hating Trump feel about Trump. Another consulting producer is Morgan Murphy. She was doing a live podcast the night of the election. Here's some of what she said. And I'm just saying that here comes a qualified person, and you go, okay, why didn't she make it? You go, there's clearly people in this country who are racist, who are misogynistic, who are homophobic, who, who are xenophobic. And the third consulting producer with a hand in writing the show is the terribly funny Wanda Sykes. Here's a chunk of her stand-up. Trump annoys me. His whole family annoys me. Yeah. The whole, I, the whole kit caboodle. They annoy me. That family's rotten to the core, I'm telling you. Just rotten to the core. And, and you know, and not only are they costing us a shitload of money, because he keeps going to that tacky-ass Mar-a-Lago. If you... You couldn't pay me to spend a night in that tacky-ass joint. Every prominent voice associated with the show is not just anti-Trump, but vehemently, scathingly, vocally anti-Trump. And that is just like almost every other entertainment product out of Hollywood that tackles Trump in any way. And that's fine. But let's be real. This is a divided country. And we have in Roseanne, on Roseanne, one character played by an actress of wackadoo political ideology, who is a stand-in for half of America. I say that's good. 
it's not good in terms of representation or balance. It's just good fodder. It makes for excellent tension, which gives rise to interesting situations and jokes. Sort of why I watch a sitcom. Roxanne Gay writes, I could not set aside what I know of Roseanne Barr and how toxic and dangerous her current public persona is. Yes, I get it. It's as if Archie Bunker were played by a real-life Archie Bunker. That's not as comforting as him being portrayed by Carol O'Connor, who didn't really believe in Archie Bunker's ideology. I get that. But if the price we had to pay to get the actual show Archie Bunker were him being embodied by a guy who believed that stuff, I still say it would be worth watching the show. Forget Trump claiming the show's about us gesturing to the people at his rallies. It's also about the us who would never, ever go to one of his rallies except as a a freak show, but who might live with or share a lineage with someone who did. But more importantly, like I said, it's funny. We shouldn't be so small-minded to discount this piece of culture for failing to pass a purity test. Roxanne Gay writes of the new Roseanne show, Sometimes I consume problematic pop culture knowing I shouldn't, knowing how harmful that pop culture can be. On the contrary, this is not harmful pop culture. It's a well-executed attempt to grapple with human dynamics. And most importantly, a welcomed at last showcase for Michael Fishman, as well as not one, but two Beckys. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé was the producer of The Gist before he was killed off in what was revealed to be a dream. Mary Wilson is the Gist senior producer, a position she almost lost when she made crude gestures while singing the national anthem at a Padres game. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. It is odd that he randomly attends Padres games and studies his employees as they sing the national anthem. But... Witnessing a crude gesture is just the sort of thing he's been looking out for all these years. The Gist, winner of the Green Party's Georgia primary in 2012. Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>